All right, gang. Okay, so look, last Tuesday, uh, we went through this really important 30-year period uh, of the subject matter that we're dealing with here, and that is the existence of an elite group, not, not the full 1%, but closer to the, you know, the 10% the of the 1% that we're talking about, and actually getting down to uh, identifying a group of people that is very much uh, dedicated to spreading the belief in a, a second paradigm, dialectical, confrontational uh, worldview. Uh, one predicated upon an assumptions of social Darwinism in the, the superiority of, a, of an elite aristocratic ruling class uh, in the United States, but that there's a core inside this group of the 10% of the 1%. There's a smaller group that could be as little as you know, 50 to 60 men uh, who in each generation sort of uh, congregate together and actually begin to cooperate with each other and to uh, actually plan and plot uh, ways of dominating and controlling the government of the United States, both in its foreign policy and domestic policy. And that, uh, that this, this group that we were talking about uh, manifested itself rather starkly uh, during this 30-year period between 1868 and 1898 uh, in the form of uh, establishing this particular business model of the corporation that we've talked about repeatedly uh, that, that immunizes the owners of the stock, um, immunizes the board of directors, and immunizes the management of the corporation uh, under the point of developing the, the legal concept that the corporation itself was a person and that this person was the entity to be held liable uh, in the event that the activities of the corporation injured uh, anybody. Uh, that just, just the corporation itself was liable and just the assets and resources of the corporation. And we pointed out how this, this rose to full fruition in this period between 1868 and, uh, and 1898. Uh, and what I want to focus on now is this, this interest that right at the peak of this development, of this 30-year period, when you got into the period from 1896 to 1898, uh, 98 being when they invaded uh, and occupied Cuba and took over the Philippines and Guam uh, and, uh, and the, other, the others, uh, the, the Hawaiian Islands had come in. There was this period where the United States government was being uh, pushed into uh, actually invading these foreign countries and occupying their territories and uh, taking over their resources. Uh, and this came to its head, actually, uh, in the McKinley administration. Uh, in 1896, uh, William McKinley was elected president. But the, I, I want to talk about this a bit today because the, the way in which this happened is so... Uh, reflective of the same kind of thing that's going on now. What happened is that there was an individual multi-millionaire by the name of Mark Hanna uh, 
Uh, and he was a businessman in the state of Ohio. And he made many millions of dollars in the coal in the coal and iron industry. And he began to, at the age of 40, began to see himself as a power broker uh, through the use of his money, not just into buying more and more things, but actually into making decisions about the political candidates. Uh, and in uh, 1892, he attempted to, uh, to get the United States Senator from Ohio, a man by the name of John Sherman, he, that uh, this guy Mark Hanna tried to basically buy his way into getting John Sherman nominated for the Republican uh, candidate uh, for the presidency. But he failed to do that and he turned his attention in 1896 uh, to uh, picking a guy by the name of William McKinley uh, to become the president. And he applied uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of the members of the convention, the Republican convention in uh, 1896, to vote for McKinley. And he got McKinley nominated to be the Republican nominee. Uh, and he beat William Jennings Bryan. Now, this is very important because William Jennings Bryan was one of the principal participants in the Chautauqua movement that we had talked about that began in 1874 and then in 1878 transfigured into a national movement uh, across the country uh, trying to, to explain to the American public why the, the policies of the robber barons were contrary to Judeo-Christian social ethics. And William Jennings Bryan along with the people I've mentioned before, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and Clarence Darrow and Eugene Debs and others, all of whom together gave rise to the formation of labor unions uh, that began to confront uh, the major corporate powers, Pullman and the others that we touched upon, uh, began to organize major strikes against them, began to organize the women to seek uh, the vote through the suffrage movement, the uh, anti-child labor movement, uh, the, the public school movement with John Dewey, who was another major speaker there. One of the principal speakers in the Chautauqua movement was this fellow by the name of William Jennings Bryan. And he was the Democratic Party nominee in 1896. And he was defeated by, uh, by uh, McKinley, uh, virtually entirely because of the efforts of this guy, Mark Hanna. Mark Hanna had used his money to purchase a number of newspapers in Ohio. And he then dictated to the newspapers that they write editorials and be supportive of this guy, William McKinley. Uh, very similar to, uh, 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 what's his head, who bought Fox, Rupert Murdoch, who bought Fox, set up Fox Television, bought the Wall Street Journal uh, and others that basically translated their money into political propaganda. And this fellow, this fellow uh, Mark Hanna, basically uh, purchased the nomination for McKinley and the, the, the presidency for McKinley. And when McKinley came into office after winning in November of 1896, McKinley began the most ardent uh, administration in the history of the United States in favor of American capitalism. 
that launched the uh, Spanish-American War uh, to, to seize Cuba, to seize the Philippines in, in Guam and the islands in the Pacific, uh, passed, got passed laws in the Congress uh, catering to the major American corporations. Uh, and uh, and this, this ha is uniformly seen as the most imperialistic administration in the history of the United States uh, under William McKinley and the most pro-industry, pro-capitalist uh, administration uh, up to that point in time in history. Uh, and Mark Hanna uh, got his previous candidate uh, for the Republican nomination, this, this fellow by the name of John Sherman, who was the United States Senator from Ohio that he had pitched as the Republican nominee in the previous election, he got him designated as Secretary of State. Uh, and he, that because he then went from being the Senator of Ohio into being the Secretary of State, this fellow John Sherman, uh, Mark, Mark uh, Hanna got himself appointed to be the United States Senator in Ohio to fill John Sherman's position. So Mark Hanna had not only purchased the nomination for the Republican Party and purchased the presidency for the Republican Party in 1896, but had gotten himself appointed to fill in the, the vacancy when John Sherman moved out from being the United States Senator from Ohio to become the Secretary of State. Uh, and, and he therefore had extraordinary amount of influence with John Sherman as the Secretary of State. And Mark Hanna was instrumental in, in getting the Secretary of State, John Sherman, to mount these major activities like the invasion of Cuba and taking over of Guam uh, in, the, in the Philippines, uh, et cetera, and Puerto Rico. So, so this was a, 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 a extraordinary period of time that went on from 1896 to 1900. And then in 1900, McKinley was reelected for a second term. And what happened is the, uh, the Republican Party in New York uh, wanted to push Theodore Roosevelt out, who had become the, the governor of New York. Uh, and so they recommended him to be the vice president under McKinley. And so in, in 1900, the vice presidential candidate for the Republican Party was Theodore Roosevelt, the former governor of New York, when McKinley was shot and killed uh, in, uh, in, I think it was October or November of uh, 1901, just one year into his second term. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt came in uh, to become the new president uh, at the age of 42, the youngest president in the history of the United States. Uh, and he had been exposed to a lot of the activities of the Chautauqua movement because he was a, an environmentalist. And the Chautauqua movement had been very instrumental in trying to set up public parks and uh, take steps to protect the environment. And uh, because of this, Theodore Roosevelt had become knowledgeable about the Chautauqua movement, had begun being sympathetic to the purposes of the Chautauqua movement. So when he found himself now suddenly as the president of the United States, totally unanticipated, he began to implement a number of the policies of the, pro the progressive movement, 
uh, in the Chautauqua movement uh, between uh, 1901 in 1904, in the, the last three years of the, the previous McKinley administration. And then he was reelected in 1904, and for four years, between 1904 and 1908, he mounted a, a series of campaigns against the robber barons. Uh, he, he insisted upon setting up antitrust legislation that got passed by the United States Congress. He, uh, he busted up the trust. He got anti-monopoly rules passed. He went after the, uh, he, he got a federal statute passed to regulate the rates that could be charged by the railroads, uh, which was a major source of power for the robber barons of having unbridled control over the rates of the, uh, of the uh, rail, rail, railroads. He got legislation passed to impose standards for the pure uh, production of food and drugs uh, in, in the country. And, uh, and so he, he pushed all of these things. Uh, and, but, but he did not want to remain president. Uh, what he did is from 1904 to 1908, basically at the end of his second full term, uh, three years of the first term of McKinley and, and four years of his own, he wanted to, to leave the presidency. So what he did is he trained up a fellow by the name of William Howard Taft to uh, be his protege. And he uh, stood up and put his name in denomination at the Republican convention uh, in 1908 and announced that he was not going to be running for uh, another full second term, which would have in effect been his third term. Uh, and he explicitly endorsed uh, William Howard Taft. And William Howard Taft uh, won, again defeating uh, William Jennings Bryan. Uh, so here you have William Jennings Bryan hanging out, uh, being the nominee of the Democratic Party over and over, uh, espousing these progressive policies. Uh, but the Republican Party beating him repeatedly uh, in taking the presidency. Uh, it, but, but this peculiar thing happened that, uh, that uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, turned on the Republican Party and, uh, and challenged the robber barons for control of the Republican Party and pushed them back. And then he retired when William Taft became president in 1912 uh, and basically went on a big safari to Africa. Uh, and he was gone for a, a couple of years. And when he came back to the United States in 1914 and the World War had broken out in Europe, uh, he came back to the United States and became very unhappy at the way William Howard Taft was dropping the ball on the progressive agenda that he had basically been espousing during the seven years of his administration. And so, so Roosevelt went to the convention uh, in, 19, in 1916, or 1912 rather, in 1912, he went to the Republican convention and told them that uh, he wanted the nomination. He wanted to return to the presidency. He wanted to remove Taft as the nominee whom he had hand-delivered to the convention four years earlier. Uh, but the Republican Party didn't buy it because the robber barons had organized to oppose his progressive policies. They were being successful in getting William Howard Taft to follow, to start to return to the the protective policies of the of the robber barons, and so 
there was this big, huge, dramatic scene in the Republican convention uh, uh, at, at the time. And so, uh, so he, he ran, walked out of the convention with all of his supporters and he organized the Progressive Party. Now, you've probably heard about it, called, it's been nicknamed the Bull Moose Party. But the fact is, it was the Progressive Political Party uh, that was set forth in 1912. And he campaigned for the presidency. Uh, and he cut into Taft's vote. Taft, the Republican nominee uh, for a second term, only got 23% of the vote. And uh, Roosevelt, got, as the, the, the candidate for the Progressive Party, got 27% of the vote. But this left Woodrow Wilson, who was the Democratic Party nominee, uh, who took as his Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan as his Secretary of State. And, he, and Woodrow Wilson was <laughs> elected uh, in 1912 with, with only 42% of the popular vote. So you, you had a, a very similar uh, breakdown in the, in the percentages, uh, similar to what you had in 1992 when Ross Perot uh, entered the contest against, uh, against George H.W. Bush. And, uh, and uh, in that case, Ross Perot got 19% of the vote and restricted the Republicans to 38% of the vote. And, uh, and uh, Bill, Bill Clinton won the presidency in 1992 uh, with only 43% of the popular vote. Uh, and Woodrow Wilson won in 1912 uh, with 42% of the vote. Now, this put Woodrow Wilson into the presidency in 1912. It turns out that he was only the second Democratic president in the United States during that entire 62-year period. That during, during that entire period that we're talking about here, uh, only two Democrats had been elected, and he was the second one. So the Democrats ascended into power uh, from 1912 to 1916, and so they were, they were in power, and the Secretary of State was William Jennings Bryan, uh, who was part of the Chautauqua movement. And a lot of the same progressive policies that have been being advocated by the Chautauqua movement and the progressive uh, party ended up being adopted by the Democratic Party. And so they stayed out of the war uh, in Europe. They, they continued the reforms, the antitrust uh, and the anti-monopoly policies uh, against the robber barons. And now it's important to turn your attention to Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson uh, was, a, was a professor uh, he was a political science professor from Princeton University uh, and had become the dean of Princeton University. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because in the political science department at Princeton University at the time, uh, this was the university at which uh, Reverend uh, John Witherspoon had been the professor of moral philosophy for decades. Uh, and in fact, when it was the College of New Jersey. And he is the man who had trained uh, James Madison and uh, uh, Burr and 23 of the original uh, United States Senators and uh, 36 of the original uh, Congress people to the United States. And they, they, they had taught natural law at Princeton University. 
And th this was the, the, the head of the political science department who had become the dean of Princeton University who was elected president. So what you have is in 1912, because of the insurgency into the Republican Party on the part of Theodore Roosevelt, who had become a progressive and started the Progressive Party, the Democratic Party uh, came back into power in 1912 and continued to promote and promulgate progressive policies in the United States. And it, and it sort of pushed against the whole ascendancy of the robber barons into their positions of power. Uh, and so, so this, this is an extraordinarily important period. And what happened is in 1915, now remember now, the, he comes in in 1912, he's there from 1912 to 1916. And in 1915, the war is still going on in Europe. The United States is not involved in the war. But in 1915, the Ger a German U-boat uh, sank the USS Lusitania, which you may have heard about. Uh, but there was, there was this incident where uh, a German U-boat in World War I sank an American uh, ship, the Lusitania, and, uh, and, the, uh, and uh, Woodrow Wilson decided he was going to write a letter of protest to the German government about this. Uh, he was not going to go to war with them. But this young fellow who was in the, in the Secretary of State's office, a fellow by the name of Robert Lansing, uh, was the advisor uh, to, uh, to Woodrow Wilson on issues relating to the European policies. And he drafted a letter that was uh, deemed by the Secretary of State of, of Wilson, that is William Jennings Bryan, to be too belligerent and it was basically twisting the tail of Germany and was generating a potential for Germany to think that the United States was becoming hostile to them and was interested in joining into the war. Uh, and it turns out that Woodrow Wilson ended up uh, being persuaded by Lansing to send this letter and William Jennings Bryan resigned as the Secretary of State. This major force from inside the Chautauqua movement, uh, in a peak of principle, uh, resigned as the Secretary of State, and Robert Lansing came in. And you may remember, Robert Lansing was the son-in-law of John W. Foster, who had been the Secretary of State under Harriman, uh, and had been part and parcel of this rise into the ascendancy of the domination of the robber barons in American foreign policy. He is the guy that actually uh, sent the foreign military expeditionary force of the United States into the Hawaiian Islands and overthrew the government of Hawaii and installed a pro-capitalist, uh, explicitly and self-consciously pro-capitalist government in Hawaii, saying that the, the people, the, the royal family governing Hawaii wasn't adequately motivated to develop the resources, the natural resources of their island, and so they were no longer entitled to govern. And so they, they superimposed upon the, uh, the island of Hawaii a, a colonial government that was basically sympathetic to the capitalists and the robber barons. And so that his son-in-law, now Robert Lansing, had become the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. 
And what happened is Woodrow Wilson had a massive stroke uh, and was disabled. Uh, and this guy, Robert Lansing, who had been tutored at the knee, basically, of, uh, of John uh, W. Foster, came in and started promulgating these kind of pro-capitalist, pro-robber baron foreign policy proposals and started pushing them into going into war. Uh, and he started to convene, actually, during the, the, the invalency of, of Wilson, this guy, Robert Lansing, actually convened several sessions of the cabinet uh, and chaired these meetings of the cabinet in the stead of the president and basically moved these people into uh, moving toward going into the war against Germany. And so they entered the war in, in 1917. Uh, and, uh, and what happened is in 1916, the, the, they came to the convention, uh, the Democratic Convention, uh, and in resistance to this, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, attempted to run for a third term, even though he was hospitalized. Uh, that the the uh, he from from his from his hospital bed, he announced that he wanted to have a third term, and uh, he blocked the nomination of his Secretary of the Treasury, uh, a guy by the name of McAdoo, uh, who was, everybody expected him to become the, the next Republican nominee. But, but Woodrow Wilson blocked him uh, from receiving the nomination. <laughs> like this, there, there became 19 nominated candidates for the Republican, or for the Democratic Party uh, in the 1920, uh, presidential nominating convention. Uh, and uh, there were 19 of them, and it went to 44 ballots before a nominee was selected. Uh, uh, and and it, was, it was extraordinary because, as, as it turns out, that particular convention, the Democratic convention, uh, there, there were six former or future presidents that were all considered as potential nominees in that one single convention uh, that, that went on during that, during that period of time. But they ended up nominating uh, uh, Governor James Cox of Ohio, uh, and he lost. Uh, he lost the election to the Republicans, uh, and the, the Republicans uh, won, the, won, back, won back the presidency and in, in the, the United States had gone into the war, uh, into Europe, uh, and they, they entered the war and in, in, in fought in the war and ended up basically turning the tide uh, in the war against Germany. Uh, and the German, the German aggression was defeated uh, in Europe. Uh, but what happened is uh, one of the keys to this was this is the point uh, a key point I want to make today is that the the Bolsheviks rose up in Russia in October of 1917 and basically overthrew I kept saying Tsar Alexander it isn't it's Tsar Nicholas it was Tsar Nicholas II that got overthrown 
uh, and, uh, and the Bolsheviks came to power and withdrew Russia from a World War I. The United States had come into the war, uh, and so with Russia going out of the war, the United States coming into the war, the United States ultimately was victorious uh, in World War I, and, uh, and they entered into the Versailles Treaty negotiations. Uh, and th this was still, this was still uh, uh, at the very end of the, of the second administration of, uh, of um, Woodrow Wilson. And so the, the head of the negotiating committee at Versailles was Robert Lansing. And Robert Lansing brought with him to the Versailles Treaty negotiations uh, in 1919, brought with him to the treaty negotiations his two nephews, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, who were the grandsons of John W. Foster. And you'll recall that I had mentioned that, that uh, John W. Foster had retired as the Secretary of State uh, 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 under Harrison in 1893, and had gone into retirement up in Watertown, New York, and had bought a big resort, and he devoted his attention to tutoring uh, not only his two grandsons, John W. Foster and Alan, or John, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles, but also helping to tutor Robert Lansing. And so that, that the, all three of these guys uh, were at the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. Uh, with, with Robert Lansing as the Secretary of State uh, for Woodrow Wilson and uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles as lawyers in the negotiations. And it was the Dulles brothers under the whip hand of Robert Lansing that superimposed the reparations requirements. Uh, it was, it was uh, it's, it's called Section 231 uh, Article 231 of the uh, Treaty of Versailles imposing war reparations upon Germany. Uh, and what, what happened was, it was quite extraordinary that you, you get this, this confluence of events taking place where the Bolsheviks have come to power in Russia in October of 1917. The uh, Robert Lansing, as the Secretary of State, with, with uh, Woodrow Wilson in the hospital, uh, basically incapacitated from the stroke, and Robert Lansing has basically ascended into running the policy, the foreign policy of the United States, he has not only brought the United States into the war, uh, which, which, uh, which Woodrow Wilson had resisted doing, but has now gone into the treaty negotiations and has imposed the reparations upon Germany, which end up uh, establishing this extraordinary phenomenon that I've touched upon earlier, whereby the reparations were required to be paid by Germany to the companies that had been damaged during the war. Uh, and, the, uh, and the Dulles brothers, who had written the reparations requirements into the Treaty of Versailles, Alan Dulles became the lawyer out of Sullivan and Cromwell, became the lawyer for Germany. And he negotiated loans that were going to be loaned to Germany to pay the reparations. 
these loans were being given to Germany by the clients, the private investment clients of Brown Brothers Harriman. And Alan Dulles was the lawyer for Brown Brothers Harriman, as well as the lawyer for, for the government of Germany. And so he was negotiating these loans, and the loans were being used to pay back the war debts, the damages that had been imposed, uh, in, in many instances, upon clients, corporate clients, of Brown Brothers Harriman. And so there was this extraordinary, uh, has been called the merry-go-round, uh, the financial merry-go-round of the loans, the, the way that the, the German government would do it is the German government would make available bonds, German bonds, and they would be purchased by the, the investment clients of Brown Brothers Harriman at the recommendation of Alan Dulles, who was the lawyer for the German government, they would recommend that, their, that Brown Brothers Harriman private investors purchase these bonds, and so they would buy the bonds, which are in effect loans, given money to the German government, and the German government was then using it to rebuild its military and its industries, and the clients of Brown Brothers Harriman began to invest heavily in the major uh, industry in Germany and starting to rebuild the major war machine of Germany, self-consciously for the purpose of establishing Germany as the dominant military power, again, in Europe, to serve as the bulwark against Bolshevism in Europe. Because when the Bolshevik Revolution happened in October of 1917, Robert Lansing was also instrumental now, still with Woodrow Wilson hospitalized with the stroke, Robert Lansing is instrumental in, in mounting, uh, in fielding a foreign military expeditionary force into Russia to basically get the support of the, quote, white Russians, who are the Russians on the Western Front in St. Petersburg, uh, the European uh, Russians that were intermarried with the Habsburgs, uh, out of the royal families of Europe, uh, such as, uh, as uh, the, uh, Peter the Great, for example. Uh, uh, that these are all relatives of the royal families of Europe, and that they're much more European than the rest of Russia. Uh, and, and so the, the Robert Lansing not only sent in the Foreign Military Expeditionary Force into, uh, into Russia in 1918, to try to crush the Bolshevik Revolution in the cradle, but he also ran the Versailles Treaty negotiations where he put the, the uh, under the color of putting reparations upon the Germans, designed a system by means of which the private investors in Brown Brothers Harriman, such as uh, John D. Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, in uh, E.H. Uh, e. Harriman, and these other multi-billionaires, could actually finance the rebuilding of Germany and reestablishing Germany as a massive military power and at the same time be making millions and millions of dollars uh, in buying into the major industries in Germany. And so this, this is the, 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 the extraordinarily important dynamic that took place at the end of World War I. So that not, o not only was that going on at Brown Brothers Harriman under the directorship of uh, George Herbert Walker, who was the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman, 
uh, and the lawyering of Alan Dulles as a partner in, Brown, in Sullivan and Cromwell and the lawyer for Germany, that they had worked out a mechanism for transferring billions of dollars of wealth out of the United States of these multi-billionaires into Germany to rebuild the German uh, industry in their war machine uh, to combat the rise of Bolshevism uh, and to keep uh, socialism and communism from coming into Europe. And this is, the, it was not only done by means of floating these, quote, loans to Germany, but also, the, and I mentioned this earlier, is that George Herbert Walker retired as the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman and went off and set up the Union Bank of New York and turned over the CEO position in Brown Brothers Harriman to his son-in-law, uh, Prescott Bush. Okay, and so this, this is the beginning of the power of the Bush family, of George Herbert Walker, who is the maternal grandfather of George Herbert Walker Bush, George H.W. Bush, and the great, great maternal grandfather of George W. Bush, uh, George Walker Bush. So this is the George Herbert Walker uh, that is the origin of all of that family uh, history and power. And what George Herbert Walker does is he steps out as the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman after they've set up this entire process of sending billions of dollars to Germany to invest in rebuilding the war machine in the industry of Germany. Uh, and he steps out and sets up the Union Bank of New York. And what they do is they capitalize that bank and then they set up a chapter of the bank in the Netherlands called the Bank, the bank of Shipping and Commerce uh, under the control of a guy named Fritz Thyssen. And they then begin to give loans from that bank into the Nazi party in Germany. So that not only uh, is Brown Brothers Harriman and the private investors in Brown Brothers Harriman rebuilding the war machine and all the industry in Germany, but the Union Bank of New York and the Bank of Commerce and Shipping in the Netherlands are actually directly financing the Third Reich and the Nazi party to rise into a position of power to take over the, the newly reinstituted uh, war machine in, in industry of Germany. And uh, this, this process is going on from 1924 all the way to 1933. And then on January 3rd of 1933, there is this important meeting that takes place in Germany. And John Foster Dulles uh, and Alan Dulles, representing the private investment clients in Brown Brothers Harriman, go to Germany and they have a direct face-to-face -face meeting with Adolf Hitler. And Hitler signs an agreement agreeing to take responsibility for repaying the loans that have been given to the German government by the investment clients of Brown Brothers Harriman, and thereupon uh, John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles give the green light to, to Adolf Hitler being made the Chancellor of Germany and taking over the control of, of the, the German government. And because of the financing through the Union Bank of New York and the Bank of Commerce and Shipping out of the Netherlands, the Nazi party is in a position to rise into power with Hitler to take control of Germany. 
And all of this is done uh, with the direct participation and financial support of these same people who are the private investment clients uh, in Brown Brothers Harriman. You're talking about maybe 30 men who are the major stockholders uh, in the major 50 major corporations in the United States that have functionally monopolized all of the, the iron and steel production, the railroads, the shipping lines, uh, the, uh, the agricultural uh, industry in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry in the United States. And these are the corporations that are buying out corporations in Germany and having them function in effect as subsidiaries of them and they're making millions of dollars in profit with the the war machinery being produced in Germany being purchased by the German government uh, using loans that have been given to them by Brown Brothers Harriman uh, other people and so there is this there is this merry-go-round that is established between 1924 and 1934 basically with billions of dollars of capital flowing out of the United States into Germany uh, and then generating additional billions of dollars of profits for those investors in Brown Brothers Harriman. Uh, and so all of, these, all of these people have basically set up, just these 30 to 40 men, have set up a mechanism whereby not only are they being enriched by billions of dollars, but they've actually dominated the foreign policy of the United States to basically bring Germany up into a position of power to dominate all of Europe. Uh, and in fact, then in 1939, when, uh, when Hitler invades uh, Poland, uh, these guys mobilize and push back against the United States government coming into, into the war. Uh, because what we notice is that it goes all the way back to 1933 when, when they agreed to have Adolf Hitler become the chancellor in Germany. At the same time, in 1932, the Democratic Party succeeded in getting Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, the cousin to Theodore Roosevelt, to get him elected president and Franklin Roosevelt has come in because these, these men who have been running the finances uh, of the United States have driven the United States stock market into complete collapse in 1929. So that the, the depression, uh, the, the collapse of the stock market has taken place in 1929. Uh, and the, because of that, the Republicans fall out of political power. Uh, and the Democrats come into power with Franklin Roosevelt, and Franklin Roosevelt begins to reinstitute a lot of the same kind of restrictions on the major corporations, enforcing the antitrust laws, the anti-monopoly the anti laws, and begins to set up a whole set of regulations uh, attempting to rein in the power of the corporations. Uh, and what happens is these people from Brown Brothers Harriman organize uh, under J.P. Morgan, uh, and they attempt a military coup against Franklin Roosevelt, the President of the United States. That, uh, that this fellow, uh, I believe his name was Murphy, uh, uh, Charles Murphy, uh, who was the Chief of Staff for J.P. Morgan, you know, goes to the Commandant of the United States Marine Corps, uh, Major General Schmedley Butler, 
and uh, asks him to head up a military coup against the Roosevelt government uh, because the Roosevelt government is cracking down on the major industry uh, in the industrialists and in the capitalists in the country. And, uh, and uh, General Butler uh, goes to the United States Congress and blows the whistle on these guys. Uh, and the United States Congress has a set of hearings and they find that the, uh, the evidence that has been put forth by uh, General Butler uh, is in fact credible, but they, the, the results of these hearings was that, that uh, Irene DuPont and J.P. Morgan and the Rockefellers and the others stood down from attempting to, to mount this military coup against Roosevelt. Uh, and so Roosevelt stays in power. So Roosevelt has succeeded in pushing back this military coup that was attempted by these 30 men against him. Uh, at the same time, these 30 men are over in, in Europe greenlighting uh, Hitler to come to power. And so we, we have this entire period between 1934 uh, and 1939 where the United States government uh, under Franklin Roosevelt knows that, uh, that the, German, the German military under Hitler is getting ready to invade all of Europe, but he, uh, he, he, is unable, he is unable to mobilize the United States to come to the defense of the people in Europe. So in 1939, when Hitler invades uh, Poland uh, and mounts war against all the other countries in Europe, the United States is immobilized by these powerful men in positions of power uh, in the United States are funding the elections of various senators and congressmen and keeping us out of the war. And so the reality is that, that uh, uh, Hitler in Nazi Germany are not only firebombing their way through Poland with the Blitzkrieg, but they're marching down the, the, the streets of the, the Champs-Élysées in Paris, overtaking the, the French government, and have run, have run through Europe and are firebombing England, and the United States is still not in the war, is still not coming to the aid of the people in Europe. And so Franklin Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt then, I, I pointed this out to you before, the evidence appears quite strong that Franklin Roosevelt actually lured the Japanese into attacking uh, the United States uh, uh, Navy uh, in, in uh, Pearl Harbor because, because Roosevelt couldn't mobilize enough support among the American people to, to come to the aid of the, of the people in Europe because these men uh, were writing editorials uh, in support of Germany. They were writing editorials uh, against Russia, spending their time focusing on what a terrible threat Russia was, uh, and not Germany. Uh, they, they actually set up a, uh, a, before Roosevelt came to power, they actually set up uh, the Attorney General of the United States, uh, this guy Palmer, his name was, uh, uh, Attorney General Mitchell Palmer, uh, initiated a whole set of raids against the organizations that had actually been generated by the Chautauqua movement, uh, the women's suffrage movement groups, the civil rights groups, the, 
the, uh, the environmental groups, the labor groups, uh, all of these different groups that were viewed as seditious by the heads of the American corporations, uh, the uh, Attorney General Palmer uh, went after them, went after them, and they, they got the Congress to pass uh, an Espionage Act, a Sedition Act, and they used these, uh, these powers before Franklin Roosevelt came into, into uh, the government. They used these powers to try to break up and arrest uh, all of the organizers of these organizations. So this, this, is a, this is an extraordinarily important period of time for you. Now, <clears throat> this, this isn't just a, a, a simple history course uh, that we have here. Uh, as I've said, that what we're, what we're doing is we're trying to direct your attention to certain aspects of history that show the existence of this group, this cabal of about 30 to 50 men uh, who are clients, private clients, these, these uh, high, this, uh, high worth net worth individuals who are private clients of Sullivan and Cromwell and who are private investment clients of Brown Brothers Harriman, the Brown Brothers Harriman being represented by the same law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, who are engaged in all types of uh, activities that are, are, are getting the federal government to invade uh, countries around the world, such as Cuba and the Philippines and Guam, uh, et cetera, and they're financing the rise to power of a fascist uh, government in Germany. All of this is being done by dint of their, their financial power that they have. Uh, and, and Roosevelt comes into office to basically challenge them, uh, both actually Theodore Roosevelt and then Franklin Roosevelt, to challenge uh, these people. And they basically uh, counterattack against him and actually attempt a military coup against him, fail to do that. And so Franklin Roosevelt keeps on coming uh, against them. And the astonishing reality uh, here is, I believe, that he actually, in the face of editorials that are being written, for example, by Henry Luce, who owns Time Magazine and Life Magazine and Fortune Magazine, et cetera, I mentioned earlier that uh, during this period of time, uh, leading up to 1941, between 1934 and 1941, 34 when Hitler actually came to power as the chancellor in 1941, on eight different occasions, the magazines that are published by Henry Luce put on the cover of one or another of their magazines, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and others, on eight different occasions, they put on the cover either Hitler or Mussolini or Franco. And they had articles in the magazines openly espousing fascism as the form of financial relationship that ought to exist between uh, corporations in the United States and the federal government, pointing to Europe, to, to Germany and Spain uh, and Italy as the model of how it is that the, the partnership between the corporations and the government ought to be conducted. And so they were aggressively resisting 
any efforts on the part of, of politicians inside the United States to come to the aid of England or France or Poland or any of the other countries in Europe that it were, had been invaded and were being occupied by the German Nazi government. And so that, uh, so Roosevelt was, uh, from his point of view, uh, forced to figure out a way to, to mobilize the United States citizenry to get to go into the war. Because, so, what, so what he did is when the United States and England had rejected the overtures that were being made by Hitler to have England and the United States specifically join into an alliance with him uh, against Russia and the Bolsheviks, they, they were, the, uh, Churchill and Roosevelt refused to join such a pact with Germany and so Hitler established an alliance with Japan, basically sending a message to the United States government that he was going to establish an alliance so that he would not only dominate and control all of Europe, but that he would in fact try to, uh, to uh, lay claim to the right for Germany to develop the resources of Asia. And uh, so there had been a previous understanding between the German government under, uh, under Kaiser Wilhelm uh, and the United States capitalist people that ran the American government. There was an understanding that Germany would basically take control economically and militarily of, of Europe and the United States would be allowed to develop uh, the markets all the way into South America, Latin America and into, into Asia. But now that the United States had refused the overtures of Hitler to join with him and Germany in an alliance against Russia, then Germany under Hitler reached out to Japan and established an alliance with them as the Axis powers. So you had Germany and Italy and Spain and Japan were all joined together as the Axis powers. Uh, and, and so there's this, it's, it's, not a, it's not only not a very popular position to take, but it's a, it's a position that is, uh, most American historians place greater importance upon their loyalty to the reputation of the United States in the international uh, law field than they do to the truth on this. And that it's, it's quite evident that Roosevelt did this intentionally, that he, he began to ratchet up activities on the part of the United States against Japan. They cut, he cut off all shipments of any metals to Japan. He, they cut off uh, all for assistance, financial assistance of any kind to Japan. They, 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 he took one step after another of engaging in activities that could be viewed by the Japanese government only as acts of hostility against them. Uh, and then he actually sent virtually the entire Sixth Fleet of the United States Navy, of their battleships and their aircraft carriers, most importantly, into Pearl Harbor uh, in December of, of 1941 and, and put them all into, into Pearl Harbor at one time and left them there for uh, a matter of a week, and it turns out that the United States had broken the code of Japan, their military code, 
And so they, the United States military intelligence was actually monitoring the communications going on within the Japanese military talking about the plan to come and attack Pearl Harbor. So they knew perfectly well that this, uh, this attack was coming because they had all of their radio traffic uh, broken. And so what the excuse that's used now uh, as to why uh, they didn't, in fact, launch an attack against the Japanese Navy to stop them from attacking the, uh, Pearl Harbor was because if the United States had done so, it would have revealed the fact that they had broken their code. That's, that's the argument that they make as to why they didn't do that. But what it doesn't explain is why it is that Franklin Roosevelt ordered all of the United States aircraft carriers out of Pearl Harbor two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor because it was clearly understood that it was the American aircraft carriers that were the main strategic weapon that the United States needed against Japan because that enabled us to project our US air power into the Pacific against the Japanese forces because the aircraft carriers were like mobile uh, airfields uh, with US airplanes and that they could project our power into, into the, uh, the, the far Pacific. So Roosevelt withdrew the US aircraft carriers from Pearl Harbor two days before December uh, 7th of 1941 and stood back while the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and actually killed uh, United States military personnel, sank a number of, of US warships uh, at, uh, at dock uh, in Pearl Harbor. And of course, the people in the United States uh, rose up uh, as one, basically, uh, in horror at this, uh, at this sneak attack. Uh, and Roosevelt went to the Congress and asked Congress to declare war on Japan, and they did. But it's, again, it's very important to remember that the United States did not declare war on Germany. They declared war only on Japan. And then Germany declared war on the United States because they were in an alliance with Japan in the Axis. And so that it was only that way that Franklin Roosevelt was able to get the United States into a war with Germany because of these men, these 30, approximately 30 men who were so powerful and wealthy and had dominated the, the, the foreign policy and the military policy uh, and the domestic policy uh, of, the, of the United States. So, so this is, this is the, uh, the period of history that uh, I wanted to get up in, in front of you here because uh, the, this begins to show uh, the early connections in this period of time of the power of Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. Uh, this is all in 1919, 1920, to 1924, to 1934. These guys are ascending into more and more power who are the grandsons of John W. Foster, who was one of the archetypal uh, architects of the imperial policies of the United States uh, in the Pacific. So, so this it must be something I said. That, that, uh, they're leaving en masse here. Uh, yeah. But so, 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 so the, bo the bottom line is, is that 
this is an extremely important period for you to be familiar with uh, because it sets the stage for basically everything that is to follow, okay? Because uh, we've, we've come now from the end of the American Civil War up until from 1868 up to 1898 with the rise of the robber barons. We've gotten to this period of 1898 up to 1920 and it's brought you all the way up into uh, the, the uh, ascension into power in the McKinley administration of the robber barons. Uh, and we've gotten into World War I uh, and the defeat of, the, of Germany, but immediately the movement on the part of these 30 to 40 men at Brown Brothers Harriman in Sullivan and Cromwell into basically building up the military of Germany and we've gotten all the way to the point where, the, where Germany has invaded uh, all of Europe and is attempting to foist upon Europe the, the economic uh, and governmental system of fascism. Uh, and this element inside the United States that is sympathetic with the theory of fascism. And, and what, we, what we're going to be doing uh, starting next week is we're going to be taking a look at what happens. I mean, there's, you know, a hundred books that have been written uh, all about World War II and the actual give and take of World War II and the battles of World War II, et cetera. But what, what, I, what I want to begin emphasizing uh, next week, uh, Tuesday, is I want to start talking about the, the steps that were, that were taken in the United States uh, to set up a special... Uh, OSS operation during World War II so that other than just the general military history of World War II that people know generally about that there's this entire backstory of this Office of Strategic Services that uh, is the precursor to the American Central Intelligence Agency that we're going to start talking about at the beginning of next week and the role that they played at the end of World War II in re-establishing the alliance with the Third Reich and the fascists uh, that, that led Germany into the war in Europe and the fact that these same elements were involved very much in the OSS and they became directly involved with the fascists at the end of World War II in bringing them back into positions of power for the same reason to try to maintain a, uh, a bulwark against Bolshevism uh, in Europe. The same exact mentality that they had, okay? So look, so look this is, uh, this is uh, what I wanted to, uh, to talk about today. And I, I, want to, I want to do this in kind of discrete segments like this because I find it much easier to, to conceptualize of what the steps were by means of which we came to the kind of extraordinary parts of history that we're going to start talking about next week, uh, which has to do with these peculiar events that take place at the end of World War II uh, that are considered part of modern history. Uh, but that's, that's where, where we are now, and there's, there's a number of uh, uh, readings and stuff that I've, I've recommended for you to take a look at here. Uh, but there, there is this, this one section, I think we should probably, probably Xerox some of this and put it uh, either up on the, up on the internet or uh, in the library. 
but there's a, a big long section here in this. There's a book. There's a book that's called *The Splendid Blonde Beast* by Christopher Simpson, uh, and this is called *Money, Law, and Genocide in the 20th Century*. And uh, it basically is a is a, uh, uh, a description of these people that we're talking about uh, in the kind of particular role that they played uh, during this period of time. Uh, and it is so that you will, you will understand, and this has got tons of footnotes in it that shows that what it is that I'm saying to you, it doesn't have anything in here about the thing with Roosevelt, you know, instigating the attack at Pearl Harbor, but it has in detail a lot of the information, the names of the people that we're talking about that were part of Brown Brothers Harriman and these, uh, and uh, Dylan Reed and, uh, and the uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, and so that I, I want to, I want to uh, have some discussion now with you about this. We're going to have a, a bit of a longer discussion in the, uh, in the uh, uh, discussion group uh, across the way. But I, I, want to, I want to stop right there because it's, it's sort of a, a full kind of a glottal stop uh, uh, when we get to this period at the end of World War I and we start to bridge into uh, the rebuilding of Germany by these same people and setting up all these special relations. Uh, and the most shocking piece of information is that these people in the United States who are these wealthy investors through Brown Brothers Harriman uh, are in fact the people who financed the actual rise to power in Germany of the Third Reich. Uh, and the, the reality is, is that, that there's virtually no denying the evidence that exists now. Uh, and it's taken all of this time uh, since before World War II to actually have enough courage inside the academic community to come forward with this. And, that, and I think that a lot of the important uh, reason for this is because with the collapse of the Soviet Union, as, if you will, uh, on December 31st of 1991, people don't get accused of being communists or uh, Soviet agents uh, if they talk about this inside the academy. And so you're starting to get books written now uh, actually cataloging all of the evidence that exists uh, that these robber barons uh, are the very men who financed the rise of Hitler. And, and now we have the evidence about this January 3rd uh, meeting in 1933 with, with, uh, with Alan Dulles, who went on to become the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, and John Foster Dulles, who went on to become the Secretary of State under Eisenhower meeting directly with Hitler and giving the green light to him being made chancellor for the specific purpose of, uh, of allowing Germany to become the dominant power uh, in Europe to stop uh, the, the effect of socialism uh, undermining the, the theory of capitalism, indeed undermining the theory of uh, fascism. Again, which I'll, I'll emphasize in closing and get ready for some discussion here, that fascism is the direct partnership between you know, privately owned for-profit corporations and the governing structures 
uh, of a given nation state. That they actually have a, a symbiotic relationship where the federal government will subsidize much of the costs of the corporation, research and development, uh, basic infrastructure costs, building roads for them, bridges for them, uh, the kinds of things that they need to move their, their goods and services around, uh, railways, uh, uh, financing, subsidizing the building of locomotives for the railways, uh, and, and yet the, the corporation, the owners of the stock of the corporations, have not only been given immunity against any legal liability, uh, stockholders, board of directors, and management, but that in fact the owners of the stock are allowed to keep the profits that are generated by these private companies. Uh, so this, this is a, I mean, you, you would, would say to yourself, if in fact you're one of these people, you know, gee, if you can get that kind of a deal, why wouldn't you? You know, so I mean, the fact that they advocate this type of arrangement is not surprising. Uh, so that the, the real danger is that when you have a structure that allows the money that is generated by corporations to purchase the legislatures, to finance the elections of people in Congress and in the United States Senate, then it becomes absolutely inevitable that these people will direct those people to start moving toward a system of fascism because it's perfectly logical. It's just as simple as two, four, six, eight, ten. You know, it's, it's almost an arithmetic uh, pressure that's on to get this kind of a result. And so that's, that's the danger that we face right now because in the same way that we saw those judicial decisions that were coming about when the major industrialists got their railroad lawyers and corporate lawyers appointed to the federal judiciary and they ended up stating that the corporations were a person and that, that we had these 260 some decisions that were made uh, all on behalf of corporations under the 14th Amendment protecting them against being regulated uh, by the government. Uh, this is the same situation that we find ourselves faced with right now. Uh, We've got Citizens United in place. We've got billions of dollars uh, flowing uh, into the electoral system. You've got the Koch brothers trying to finance uh, particular candidates. You know, you've got one particular candidate now, Trump, you know, having put in uh, millions and millions of dollars of his own money to, to be elected uh, president. And, uh, and you see rising up in articulate opposition to them a person like Bernie Sanders specifically, you know, uh, branding them for what they are and in, in, in saying so. And yet the, the entire system of the Republican Democratic Party just kind of recoils from all of that uh, and just sort of lets it kind of run off them. Uh, and they just keep moving forward, authorizing that type of a system. And that the danger that we're faced with right now is the potential rise of fascism. Because just stop and think, if Donald Trump hadn't been the complete and total asshole that he is. You know, just, just stop and think about it. I mean, the guy has, the kind of things he said, 
uh, about women, the kind of things he said about minority people. I mean, harassing, harassing a news person who is disabled right in front of everybody at a press conference. And, and people still say, well, you know, that's okay. And, and, and what it's doing is it's, it's deadening the American people to that type of conduct. So just think if in fact that he'd been charming and suave and sophisticated, uh, assume that a person of the kind of skills of a, of a, uh, a Bill Clinton or of a John Kennedy who happened to have the same kind of ideology that they do about bringing all the business people into government and having the government run just like a business and we'll make deals all around the world and establish our hegemony and bring us back to, bring us back to glory, that kind of thing. I mean, you, you, see, you see virtually all of the institutions, which you'll see even the Republican Party is going to acquiesce in the face of that. They're going to place more value on preserving the stability of the Republican Party than they are in trying to get him stopped. So, you know, if he, if he comes to Cleveland with anywhere around 1,200 uh, elected delegates, even though he hasn't gotten the 1,237, they're going to back away from this whole discussion they were having about allowing the rules to be changed at the convention, uh, to bind uh, delegates through more than one, one ballot. You know, you're going to see the Republican Party, one of the two major parties in the United States, acquiesce to this guy being their nominee. And he's going to campaign, you know, on these same kind of values. And, and the likelihood is that Hillary Clinton is going to beat him probably 55-45. It could be as high as 60-40. But when you stop and think that 40% of the people that are voting in the country could possibly vote for a guy like that. You know, uh, you have to realize that the, the danger of a recurrence of what we saw happen uh, back in the period of time that we've just been talking about here uh, on Tuesday and today, the, the ascendancy into power of a, of a small group of men who are, and we know what they're around right now with Dick Cheney, well, you know, you can just rattle them off. You know, Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld and, uh, and Paul Wolfowitz and uh, Scooter Libby and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you can just go right down the list with Elliot Abrams and all these people. They're all part of the Project for a New American Century. They're all kind of ultra right-wing uh, neo-fascists. And, and yet they have support and they, they're authorizing torture of people around the world on behalf of what? on behalf of being able to send 250,000 US military people into the Middle East to occupy the Middle Eastern oil fields. You know? And, and yet the, the national media in the United States are reluctant to say so, to say it as simply as what is actually happening. So the, the, reason, that, the reason that we're teaching this particular course and the reason that I'm, I'm taking it one step at a time for you to be able to see this thing, is to understand that the threat that these people pose is a very real and present threat today. And that we may well be able to stave it off, you know, by making the concessions that we're making to have Hillary Clinton, you know, be kind of this classic moderate 
who is going to be kind of an incrementalist who keeps saying that she agrees in principle with what Bernie Sanders is saying, uh, but that we just can't do it right now uh, because we've got these recalcitrant Republicans and uh, bankers who are helping to finance her campaign who don't want it to happen, that they don't want these kind of changes to be made in the present system. They like the system the way it is, with more and more of the income coming into the top 1% of the people in the country, and larger and larger percentages of people going below the poverty line, and uh, in fighting off raising the minimum wage uh, to even a living wage. These, these issues are all completely current. They're all issues that are right up in front of us right now. Uh, and so that I, I want you to be uh, warned, warned right now, because these people are going to be doing everything that they can to stop government policies that are going to effectively stop global climate change. You know, they are promoting and fostering policies that are going to subject you and your children to the most catastrophic future that we have seen since the American Civil War here in North America. You know, with, I mean, Houston underwater right now, you know, uh, with, with massive uh, rainstorms and stuff, you know, flooding them all out, uh, cars being swept away in the streets. This is going to go on and on in increasing tornadoes, increasing hurricanes, uh, <clears throat> massive sea rise. Uh, this is going to happen. Uh, and that in order for us to mobilize, we're going to have to figure out some way to be more effective than we have been in just supporting Bernie Sanders. You know, because Bernie Sanders has come rising up and has come close you know, and he's raised a lot of issues and he said what needs being said. But the fact of the matter is the system is able to just to roll with that kind of a punch. They can absorb that kind of a punch and then pass over the control to a person who is taking millions and millions and millions of dollars from the major financial centers like Brown Brothers Harriman and law firms like Sullivan and Cromwell financing her election. And, uh, and there's no doubt at all that she's not going to do the kind of things like Donald Trump would or, or Ted Cruz would or that Rubio would or even Kasich, who is a nice fella and pretty mellow dude. But when you look at his policies, I mean, they are emphatically right wing reactionary policies that he's advocating there. OK. And so the, the you know, where where has the simple, normal conservative voice gone? in the Republican Party. It's virtually quelled. You know? And where is the genuinely progressive voice inside the Democratic Party gone? It's, it's not given any kind of voice at all. You have these, these inveterate middle moderates, you know, uh, like, like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and Al Gore and, and Joe Lieberman and the others, that are they're the only ones espousing incremental change. And what they're basically doing is they're holding on to the woodwork for the rich and the powerful as they move forward with the policies that are destroying the entire environment for us. So what I'm saying is that we're going to have to do something more aggressive 
than what we have accomplished so far with regard to supporting Bernie Sanders. Okay? There's something more dramatic has to be done. And uh, the, what I want to do is I want to start talking about next week, I want to point out what these people, how far they have actually gone, because they've gone farther than just financing the rise of the Third Reich. They've gone farther than, uh, than, than, than simply uh, making billions of dollars off you know, rebuilding Germany to assert its power in the world. You know, they have, in fact, mobilized and assassinated a president of the United States and have gotten away with it. Uh, and, and so that in the, in the evidence is there, and we, we have you know, 20 uh, 90 minute lectures, uh, if you want to look at them all, you know, that we've, we've got them available. Uh, and what we'll do is we'll actually send you the, the linkages to all 20 of those lectures. And, and what it does is it, it, it goes step by step setting forth the alternative theories of the assassination, all the way from the fact that, you know, the assertion that Oswald did it for all the reasons that are asserted by the Warren Commission, all the way on up through, through the various conspiracies, you know, it doesn't have conspiracy theories such as, you know, a UFO landed and was invisible to everybody and killed him and flew away. You know, I mean, they don't, they don't have all of the uh, conceivable conspiracy theories, but it's got all of the eight major conspiracy theories, uh, including the one that has the direct first-hand evidence about it, okay? And so that in all of that is all just as a precursor to get you into a state of consciousness of being aware of the steps to which they'll go, you know, unless, unless we figure out a way to mobilize and conscientize our people uh, to rise up against these people and to put them out of business and alter the fundamental economic structure of corporate capitalism that inevitably destroys the environment of our planet because it is essential, is essential for that economic system to consume the natural resources in order to transform them into products so they can continue to generate profit for their stockholders. You know, and this is pointed out by, by uh, Pope Francis in his papal encyclical on global climate change, okay? So that, that's just sort of getting us all in a certain frame of mind so you know where we are and what we're doing here. Uh, and so far we've gotten to just the, uh, the onset of World War II. And so we'll, we'll pick up uh, next week uh, with the aftermath of World War II and what it is that's happened there. So, so there, there we are. Uh, we've got a 15 minute period here for us to, uh, to talk about uh, anything, actually, including your papers or anything else. Uh, and then we go next door and, uh, and have our discussion there for just an hour or so. Okay, so I want you to, I want you to, uh, uh, I've got to figure out what, uh, what I need to do to be able to uh, get you into a, a better frame for asking questions because I can tell that what I'm doing now just leaves you kind of jaw hanging open a little bit uh, and then not quite knowing what to say or ask about. Uh, you'll be better once we get over next door. Uh, actually, so let's, let's see what kind of questions you do have right at the top of your mind right now and then we'll deal with those, okay? 
yes. was trying to not get the U.S. involved in the war because they were involved in helping Germany. Because they wanted, they wanted the Nazi regime to be in place as a bulwark against Bolshevism. They wanted them to establish fascism as the economic model throughout Europe to be able to stave off any influence on the part of the Soviet Union in persuading people to adopt a socialist or a communist economic system. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, that was why they were doing it. Okay. Let's see. Tomas? In the meeting that you were talking about in uh, 1933 with um, John Allen Dulles with Hitler, yes. um, were they made aware that um, Hitler's, like, did Hitler talk about Lebensraum and his final solution ideas? And were they uh, afraid that that would play into their identity as an American corporation? Or did they not care about that? They were just interested in these fascist economic it was the loans. It was, very, it was very specifically focused on all of these loans that had been given to the, to the German government uh, over, the, over the period of time from, from uh, basically 1920 all the way to 1933. There were like a dozen years of loans, billions of dollars of loans that had been given to the, the German government uh, cities. Uh, and electrification programs and rebuilding factories and everything else and that that uh, Hitler had asserted that if he came to power he was going to refuse to pay those loans because he thought that they were illegitimate they were part of uh, reparations that were being pay made to pay and that he wasn't going to do it and so that they had this meeting uh, and in the meeting he agreed to take responsibility for paying the loans so it was a very, as far as we can tell, it was very narrowly focused on that. And, uh, and so his law, and it, was the, it was the clients of Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles at Brown Brothers Harriman who had this full-scale support of the fascist theories and the economic theories in the, their reestablishment of their power over, you know, taking back the Sudetenland and the other things that they were going to be doing. They knew what, they knew what Hitler was advocating. I mean, he, he was not shy about saying what he was going to do when he came to power. I mean, he wrote the entire thing out in Mein Kampf. Uh, so they, they knew where he was going. And the reality is that their clients agreed with that. Uh, but in that meeting, as far as we know, the only thing that was really discussed was his willing to, willingness to assume responsibility to pay those debts. Yes. Okay, so, so, so let's, let's uh, give ourselves you know, 25, 30 minutes. Let's go over next door for our discussion and try to, try to you know, dig in and think of some of the, the questions you've got because uh, I want to be helpful in answering the questions, okay?